0: Well, it is always a privilege uh, to be able to come back and visit with Cross Creek, uh, which still feels like our home. It feels like a homecoming. Uh, I also have to come back each week because Paul and I are trying to be on a regular schedule of getting to see each other. I saw him actually a couple weeks ago at Cahaba Parks Mission Conference, but, but it really is always a privilege. It's fun to come back. We see so many familiar faces, and for us, it really is a homecoming. For us who are going out as missionaries to the campus, uh, what's also fun for us is to see how the faces are changing, how the faces are coming into the church. And so we rejoice with you in that. This morning, I keep wanting to say tonight with RUF and campus ministry, for the most part, my preaching is at night and I always have a hard time switching between the day and the night. So if I fall asleep, you'll understand Uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews five and six and you'll see that the title is a strong warning. Well, I want to actually change that. And I want to kind of put this before you this morning. That this morning, what we're asking is, is is a taste enough? Is a taste enough? I've been studying Hebrews with my students this, this past year. And as we've been going through Hebrews, Hebrews paints this beautiful picture, starting at the very beginning with how Christ Is the expectation, the fulfillment of everything God has been doing throughout all of history. That he is the final word of God, that he is the final sacrifice, that he is the mediator between God and man, that he is the high priest that stands in our place and gives us everything that's his. And this morning, as we look at Hebrews 5 and 6, as we kind of start in at verse 11, this is actually a time where in the middle of this sermon, this long sermon of Hebrews, the Hebrews pauses to do, to help us with something. And you'll see where he starts in verse 11. He's reflecting both backwards and to what he's about to say. And he says about this, that is about Christ and his priesthood. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain. I'm always glad when scripture itself acknowledges that some of these things are hard to explain, that they're hard to understand, that they're sometimes hard to deal with. But you'll notice this, too, what it continues to say, that that part of the reason they're hard to explain is because we become dull of hearing. So I pray as we open God's word that the veil of our hearts, the veil of our agendas that we come to we come to God and we want him to do our work in our way that that is pulled back and that we become soft and tender of hearing to hear these hard and beautiful things this is God's word i've been reading in verse 11 about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk and not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discern discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, laying Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and obstruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him in contempt. For lamb that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless And near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way. Yet in your case, beloved. We feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. As you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness. To have full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, "Surely I will bless you and multiply you." And thus Abraham, heavenly patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes. I hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask that it stands forever in our hearts. Jesus, your word is more often than not, probably more often than we certainly want to confess. It is hard. It's both hard to understand and it's just hard to take. It's hard to receive. For Jesus, we see in it, we see the reflection of ourselves, and we see it in relief to your awesome glory, your awesome power, and your awesome work. And we are undone. But Jesus, you tell us and you promise to us and you remind us that it's in your word where a people who are empty. Are filled. Where a people who are looking for life find it. Where a people who are wandering in the dark can begin to see. And so it is to you and to your word that we look this morning that we look to each week, that we come in fellowship around God, make light our dark paths, make life out of our dull and deadened hearts. Jesus, you know where we are. You know even at the end of uh, a, a season, coming into a season that is has busyness and, and anticipation of good things, but also. The, the weighing in of so many other things, God, God, that we need to step into it with the refreshment in you. God, and so we seek and we pray for the regular revival of your spirit's application of your word to us. Holy Spirit, do that work for the glory of Christ and the working out of your kingdom. We ask it in your name. Amen. You may ask, as we are reading through Hebrews 5 and 6, now that's a very interesting passage to come and and as a visiting pastor to bring to the church. What is he trying to say about us? Well, I actually think it's interesting. I, I preached on this sermon last week if you want to know why I chose this passage with my students and it brought us to the kind of the center of our, our our going through Hebrews, which I kind of already prompted for you is about this picture of who Christ is. And in the middle of the sermon, if you noticed, if you kind of started to read before and if you actually continue to read after, this is sort of a pause and it's kind of argumentation. It's a pause and his message. And I think it's a pause to do this. And, and this is helpful and beautiful for us, even if you're coming into the middle of Hebrews. That it's a pause to do some self-assessment. It's a pause to ask this question in particular. What is it that I'm feeding on? What is it that is nourishing me? We have a one-year-old daughter, which some of y'all have gotten to meet. Annie has been born since we've been gone. Uh, and she just turned one two weeks ago. And if, if you've had children it's fun to watch them grow. And at the beginning of their life, one of the things that amazed me when we had our first child is that a child and Annie, they live on on, on either formula or breast milk for the first year of their entire life. That is, they can get every single thing they need from that. They don't need anything else. Actually, when you start feeding them food, when the doctor tells you to start feeding them food around six months, the idea is not that the child gets nourishment. But it just starts practicing eating solid foods. You see, she gets everything she needs. And yet in a year in our doctor, we went to the year doctor's point. The doctor says, well, you know what? You actually need to start moving to the next thing. She needs to start drinking regular milk. She needs to start drinking regular food because this is actually how she's going to continue to grow on from here. You know, as we look at this passage and we ask this question of what is, it, what is it that we are feeding on? What is it that we're nourishing ourselves with? I think this, this reality of the of an infant and a child, it illustrates for us what Hebrews is pressing in on. That there's a time when we feed, on, we feed simply on milk. But to grow, to mature, to fill out as God's people the reality of, of a child of God, the reality of the people of God, the work of the kingdom of God, we need to learn to feast more deeply on him. You see, growth requires the right nourishment. So what is it that nourishes you? As you think about it at first, I think there's a lot of things that compete for nourishment. Our jobs can compete for nourishment. My job as a pastor, as a campus minister can be my nourishment rather than Christ himself. And I'm called to proclaim your job can be when, when, when you're looking at it and you're trying to stand and say, this is where my identity is. How well I do this. We look to our jobs to be our nourishment. We may look to our kids to be our nourishment. We may look to our spouses to be our nourishment. And it's interesting as we ask this question, as we look at ourselves How emotionally, spiritually, and actually oftentimes physically malnourished we are. You see, we're still lonely. We're still living on fear, and it's because this we continue to feed on shallow things, and because we're fearful that we won't get the next meal, and so we take in everything we can. See, whatever is nourishing you will determine your maturity. In verse 13 and 14, you see him begin. It'll determine your skill in the word of righteousness. It'll determine your handling of truth. It'll determine your understanding and be able to open up God's word. It'll determine your discernment of good and evil, knowing what is good and right, knowing what is beautiful and what is ugly and what we should embrace and what we should reject. Whatever it is that is nourishing us will determine those things. And so what Hebrews longs for is that we would mature. And here's where its final reality meets and where we're moving towards. Then it's the anchoring of our hope in Christ. This is the fulfillment. This is the fullness of Christian maturity is the gospel has it for us, that we will be anchored in a sure foundation in Jesus. And there are two things we need to see this morning. First is this. The reasons for our malnourishment, the reasons that we are not maturing, the reasons we may not be growing. And then we need to see this, too. Then what is the beginning of a healthy diet? What, is, what are the kind of those things we need to start practicing feeding on? What are those things that we need to look forward to so that we can continue to grow Those two things we'll look at this morning. The first is just this: is what are the reasons that we don't mature? And I think everything can probably, probably the reasons we don't mature can probably be seen under these two, these two things that Hebrews gives us as categories. Everything, maybe subset of this, can be. And the first is this: in verse one, it says this of chapter six: Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. That is, we are remaining in the elementary doctrines of Christ. Near, near is in kindergarten. And we went to have our parent-teacher conferences this past uh, two weeks ago, I guess. It was the first parent-teacher conferences lesson I've ever gotten to do for him. As a sound teacher, we're wondering, you know, how is he doing? And he's actually young for his grade. And what we knew is that Lanier's actually, he's very sharp. He picks up on everything. We knew he was doing kind of well academically. But the question we kind of had then was, was, what does he need to move to the next level? And is he actually ready? Because he's actually young for his grade, and so we wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing. But we know this instinctively, we don't want him to be bored. That is, he could perfect his time in kindergarten. He could be the only kid who doesn't have fits, he could be the only kid who doesn't have breakdowns, he could be the only kid who can spell and read uh, you know, at a first grade level. But for him to continue to grow, he actually needs to advance. He needs to learn in order to learn. He has to move beyond the basic things. He needs to move we need to move beyond just learning how to write our letters. You see, one of our biggest problems is that when we come to Christ, we get him and then we stop. I hear this all the time from students. I ask them, What is the gospel? And there's there's a number of things, or what does the gospel give you is one of the things they'll ask them. Well, it gives me a second chance. And you say, what well, they take Christ, they take him for the second chance. But guess what? If it's just about a second chance, you don't need him beyond that. We get Christ and then we stop. We begin to take the same class over and over. We take him again for a second chance, but we're not taking him for everything he is. And in verse 12, this is what it suggests for us that by now he's talking to the Hebrews. But I think there's a reality for us who are being nourished by the gospel in the church. In some sense, you should be teachers you should understand the gospel in a way that you can actually communicate it to somebody else. It doesn't mean everybody has to be a Sunday school teacher. But with the people that you're interacting with, your children, or older brothers, older siblings, older sisters, in a way that you can actually talk to your, your, your sisters, your brothers about it. Talk to your friends about it, that you can communicate in a way. You see, are you growing, and especially are you growing in the gospel in such a way that it's something that you can share? Another, when I ask students again that question, and I wonder if we're asking ourselves, if we give kind of that quick platitude, what is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And what I found is that what I need to ask, if we're going to ask that question is, is what does that mean? And so often we have a hard time advancing and understanding how that has any implication out of just that statement. see, do we know the deepness of the gospel? Hebrews is actually about that. It's about bringing us into the reality in the fullness of Christ who comes Christ who stands as a high priest. What does the cross mean? That Christ is a priest who takes on himself the sacrifice that takes our guilt that takes our sin. And guess what he does with it himself? He gives us his righteousness. Do you know that that's what the gospel is? I think there are reasons we only take our theology so deep. The first is which is this. That is hard work. It's hard work. It's extra study. It's something outside of the ordinary. It may not apply to our jobs as we see it. It may not apply to our families. It's something else to grow in. It's hard work. But not only this, again, if we realize who Jesus is, we take it beyond just that simple second chance If we see it as a great high priest, a son of God who comes and gives, again, everything that's his in order to take everything that's ours, then it's also hard because we know that he can't ask anything of us and it be rightfully his. We know that to know God deeper is to have to give more of ourselves. I think there's also this reason we just like a simple theology. If things are simple, I get in less arguments. If I just kind of have the basic realities of who God is, then I don't have to disagree with anybody. But I think when C.S. Lewis, for example, wrote his mere Christianity, what he was saying is don't just have a mere basic Christianity, but he is giving us the reality and the fullness of salvation to say this, that we go in to know this kind of God. See, we can't remain in the elementary doctrines. We can't remain, you know, just eating, just eating milk. The other danger is this, that we're only taste testers in fourth grade. I think this difficult passage actually is about as simple as that. It's a risky illustration, especially with students, but uh, if you've ever been to a wine tasting you know what it's about. If you haven't, there's two things you immediately start thinking in your mind. They're the things that I, I start to think. Okay, now one, that's kind of just out of my, that's, I'm just not in the league. That's too rich for my blood. That's, that's first response, right? I have no idea what you're talking about. Probably never even encountered on one of those. The other one is this, is that you think you're thinking in your head right now. You're like, wait a second. That sounds like a terrible idea. A bunch of people drinking a bunch of wine and then heading home. That sounds like a, a really good or really actually a really bad way to do foolish things. But at a wine tasting, what you do is this. You actually taste a bunch of wine and then spit it out. You take it in and spit it out because the idea is that they know that if you, if you begin to get kind of drunk, that you won't be able to taste the wine. So you spit everything out. And I think that's actually in some ways what Scripture is, is concerned about here. That what we would do is we would treat the gospel of Jesus Christ like a wine tasting. That we're too scared to drink it in because we we think it will shape us by too much. And so we spit it out. Look at verse 4 and 5. Look at what it cautions us against. Look at what it calls out. It talks about those who they come in. And what do they do? They taste. They come in and all they do is they taste the heavenly gift. They share some of the Holy Spirit. They taste the goodness of the word. But they don't do this. They don't drink. They don't feast. They don't imbibe it. They don't nourish themselves with it. You see, they take the gospel for what they want it for, and they trample on the rest. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he actually coined the phrase, cheap grace. And it's this for us sometimes in the church. We get this much of Jesus... We get the second chance of Jesus and then we do whatever we want. Paul warns against it earlier in Romans uh, 6 and 7 that we would take the grace of God to use it to do whatever we want. And what Hebrews warns us against is that the cross isn't for taste testers. The cross is not for taste testers. Jesus is not for taste testers. That's what... The Hebrews 7 and 8, the parable, sorry, 6, the verses 7 and 8. That's what it fills out for us. That it's only one or the other. Either you're drinking it in such a way that it bears fruit in your life. It bears a crop of righteousness and goodness. Or maybe like sand, it sifts through and the only thing that grows up are weeds and thorns and thistles. Jesus actually tells a parable in the same jest. You may be thinking of this in Matthew 13, he tells the the parable of sowers where the seeds are cast out on the ground and and one, one, the seed is immediately plucked up. But two of them, there's actually this period where, where the seed actually takes some quick root and grows up. But here's the thing. They are not rooted deeply. They don't drink deeply of Jesus and they're not drinking deeply of who God is. The word doesn't settle deeply into their hearts and they burn off or they die. See, Jesus gives us a similar warning. There's a difference between being nourished by Jesus and just tasting him. You merely taste Jesus, but then you're living according to another principle. That is, if you're doing that, it doesn't save you, it doesn't bear fruit. One of the things you can't do with Jesus is just start doing a bunch of Bible studies, praying, and just coming to church, but not actually taking the Christ who is there. If you think of it, that's probably where a lot of us are at times. We're, we're saying, Well, I'm here. I'm doing these things, and I'm, I'm trying to feed, but, but you're right. I don't seem to be getting nourished. I don't seem to be getting my fill. I've done all these things for God. And, and why am I not getting the return of his promise? At work, I wonder if this is how it works in sometimes some of our relationships. That is, at work, we go in and a lot of us have difficult relationships, maybe with our bosses. Or maybe it's at home. You have a difficult relationship with your spouse And this is kind of what we resolve ourselves to. We say, you know what? She's not doing the right thing. But but for now, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to keep her happy, to keep her off my back. Keep my balls off my back. Or or the saying goes, and I've heard my neighbors and some of my friends say this, you know, in in the home. This is kind of the, the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Yeah, and we build a marriage on, listen, I'm just going to keep the other person happy. That's called placating. And guess what? We may do all the right things. We may have all the trappings of a good worker or of a good spouse. But do you see the bondage of that relationship? It is a, it is a relationship of fear, not a relationship of feasting. You see, when you know your spouse... And you know what it means to be committed to love them. You no longer shape your life in relationship out of fear. You shape your life in relationship out of sacrifice because what? Because you have them. Because that's what it's about. It's about having them. If you're trying to placate Jesus. You're going to either run out of energy and doing it you're going to run out of energy and eventually just go your own way or you're constantly getting angry with God and saying to him God I have done this why haven't you given me back what you owe but you haven't known him Jesus invitation isn't just to taste him it isn't just to placate him it's to let his reins feed on you with all they need with all we need We ask, what does this look like? What does it look like then to begin that process of maturing? What does it look like to grow up? I don't want to placate. But how do I move on? How do I shape my life differently? Well, I already said it. And I realized that through pastors helping me as Leslie and I are in our first years of marriage, that to grow in marriage, to grow in my love for Leslie wasn't to measure everything she did for me. But is it to enjoy her? And the beginning of loving Jesus, the beginning of maturity is to love Jesus in a way that you simply want him for who he is instead of who you want him to be. That's what verse 10 jumps into, that it says that the reality is, and you see him praise and affirm something that is going on in the Hebrews lives. He affirms this. He affirms a sureness of better things because he sees that their work and their love is in his name. That is, that they're feasting on Him, that they're beginning to mature. And He knows it because they're they're obeying, they're resting, their lives are being shaped around the name of their Savior. You see, they're feeding on Him in obedience. You see that this is a new principle of obedience. This is not obedience out of fear. It's not obedience out of placating. But they love and they work because they know the God who is theirs And he makes them his. This is obedience. This is the obedience that's freely given, not the obedience that demands and expects returns. And this is a sign of maturity. It's a sign of maturity in this way because it's beginning to understand our identity, beginning to understand who we are. I tell my children this all the time You are mine. You are mine. You can do nothing about that. You are mine. When we go to bed, I tell them, you are mine. I tell them over and over, I love you and you cannot undo that. I love you no matter what. I love you more than the whole world. Because this is what I believe is that I think that the more they get that, the less I have to fight for everything from me. Yeah, it's interesting too, because disobedience is a sign of immaturity in this way. Because disobedience is really just outworking of not knowing who we are or what we're made for. Disobedience is trying to just take up everything and fill yourself with everything you can. Do you wonder why we are constantly feeding and never full? I was reading something, uh, uh, just a journal post on uh, Reformation 21, a blog website online, and, and one of the guys was talking about just the kind of nature of consumerism and the interesting thing of it being called consumerism. We think of he was actually talking about in light of gluttony, which we can associate with food. And he said, isn't it interesting that the way we think of all of our stuff now is that we are consumers. That is that we're feeding on all these different things. And isn't it interesting for everything we have to feed on for every new iPhone that there is put out for you to feed and enjoy your tech desires with. How quickly we grow tired. How quickly we become hungry. How much stomach pains and aches we have. Because we're nourishing ourselves with things like candy. I was talking to a guy who just broke up with his girlfriend. And this is his kind of response. And and I was grateful for his honesty. He was saying, you know, I'm angry with God. I don't know why. And he's wrestling with that. And, and this is what he said: as we kind of talked about more, he says, "I just don't get it. This is the first relationship that I have done everything right. I've put everything together in the right way. I've done everything right. Why is this happening?" And you see, there's two things he missed. He missed one: the overarching reality of his weakness. As we come in and feast on Christ, that we come as as those who are malnourished. We come as children with empty stomachs. He missed who he was. Of course he messed up. Of course he had been selfish. Of course his heart and desires have been for himself. But he also missed this. He missed that all along in trying to enjoy a relationship in the way that God had designed. What he had actually done was he had put God and her under all of his sets of conditions for his own happiness. And he never learned to enjoy the relationship freely. He never learned to enjoy the relationship rightly and beautifully. And he hadn't learned yet to enjoy his relationship with God in the same way. See, when we live on a principle of self-centeredness, here's what happens. Everything becomes insecure. Which really gets to what Hebrews says next. His final word to us in verse 11 and 12. That the other side of growing the other side of the beginning of maturity is doing this, to seek the full assurance of our hope. We look at this passage and one of the biggest questions that come to us is, is this question, is this, is this passage undoing assurance? Is it saying I can fall away? And the resounding answer from this passage is no, not at all. What it is, is this warning us from from being close to Jesus, but never having him. And then it's putting before us the reality that, that to know Jesus, to feast on him, is to have an assurance of hope that is, that is for eternity. You see, it's really simple. The maturing process begins by realizing the place where maturity is finally full. You see, in some ways, maturity is not a place for us that we can taste now. Maturity actually comes more in this, maturing and maturing in light of the gospel, in light of what Hebrews is painting for us, is putting before us, is putting before us eternity. Maturing looks like the taking hold of eternity in the present. Which means taking hold of the gospel and the full assurance of salvation that's in Christ. Because in Jesus, things become secure. Secure. Because in our high priest, when he gave us his righteousness, he does not take it away. One commentator I was reading earlier and said of Hebrews, he says, when Jesus gives us everything. When Jesus says you're no longer condemned, what he's doing is he's forfeiting the right of retribution because he's placed it on himself. And here's what it manifests itself in in faith and, and patience in the present that is when we look to Jesus and we begin to wait on him when we begin to wait on his promise we stop trying to force everything around us we stop hoarding in meals of empty food we stop grasping for the first thing that we can feed on How much of our sin, how much of our rebellion is really this? It's an impatience. How much of our inability to live in faith is because we want things now? You see, we feed on the candy that leaves our bellies aching and we wonder why. It's interesting at Halloween, you know, the uh, kids, they, actually I do too. I shouldn't, I shouldn't use them here. Yeah, we feed on a bunch of candy and yet you're not full you don't feel any better. But I think of that in contrast to Thanksgiving, because something similar happens at Thanksgiving coming up this week. At Thanksgiving, you sit down to a meal and you, and you eat for maybe three hours. And you eat till your belly's full. and You're like, I, I am so full. And yet there's a different kind of fullness. I mean, Halloween night, I, I wake up with headaches, you know, sugar headaches and everything. But Thanksgiving meal, what happens is, is about three o'clock and you, I know you all know this. You lay down and you're like, I'm happy. And you take a nap. Jesus is like a Thanksgiving meal. He's like a feast that leaves you full in all the right ways. He just leaves you full in contempt. Final point is, this is the conclusion. That was the final point. This is the conclusion. Is that faith and patience come through God's promise. Look at why did they wait patiently? Why was their faith sustaining? Because they're thinking about the promise that God had made. In verses 12, to 13 through 20. This is what they're filling out. As I was studying this, this is actually in this passage where I ran into the most confusion. Because in verse 18, it, it talks about that there's two unchangeable things that we can latch ourselves onto in the midst of this. And that that if we know these things, we will have a strong encouragement to hold fast our hope. You see, he's filling out how is it that we have endurance to the end. As I read it over and over, I was trying to understand because I was missing something. What are the two things? I knew one. I knew it was really clear that one of them was the promise of God. I mean, that was very plain to me. But what was the other? Y'all probably get it. Y'all are smarter than me. I had to open up commentaries to understand this. And I was thinking about this. It's like if y'all seen the Lego movie. There's that very end scene. This is what I was wondering. There's that very end scene in the Lego movie where or one of the one of the close to the end where there's Vitruvius, who's this uh, prophet, if you will, of the Lego story. And he's actually about to die. And he's talking to Emmett, the main character, and he tells him he says, Emmett, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you, first of all, that I made up the prophecy. And Emmett's kind of dumbfounded. And he says, well, there's one more thing I need to tell you and this last thing I, I'm going to tell you. It'll change the whole course of human history. And then Vitruvius dies. And as I was reading Hebrew, that's what I was thinking. I was like, wait a second. I got one of them, but I want both. Because what Hebrew says here in pretty climactic fashion is that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge. We have strong encouragement if we understand these things. Y'all it seems so simple. I don't know. I mean, I need help again with things like this. But it's just this, that God who promises gives us his oath. God makes promises and gives us his oath. Why? Why? One, why does he make any promise? Surely whatever God says, whatever God is doing will be done and it'll be done beautifully. But why does he make a promise and an oath? And here's what we see. For us who are insecure, what he wants us to see, the way that we mature, the way that we grow is this. By knowing the one who's secure. God can't break his promise. God can't break his oath. So in Jesus, there's a feast for his people. I look forward to taking it with you. Christ, our nourisher and sustainer. Lord, who lays before us yourself to feed upon. And God, who in eternity, we have the anticipation of feeding with you at your table. With all the saints gathered around where the promise and the oath are fulfilled in their completeness. Lord, and where faith And where patience becomes sight in reality, becomes sight in the present. We rejoice in your good words for us, sustain us in them, build us upon them for your sake and your glory and our good. Amen.